All right, why I'm not Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, part 5.3, Prima Scriptura and the Early Fathers. I just want to take a few moments and just mention once again uh, that I'm not saying that these passages that I'm presenting to you are the final thought uh, or the, the final word on everything that the uh, Father said on authority. Um, I'm trying to present them to you as honestly as I understand them, and uh, I encourage you to read them in their fullest context. I also encourage you to read Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics and hear their arguments and see if you find them convincing. I've had some interaction with one of the users on YouTube who's a proponent of Eastern Orthodoxy. Read his arguments, see if you find, find them convincing. Um, he he uh, posted a link that compiles a bunch of quotes from the fathers on um, tradition, and uh, I'll link it in the bottom uh, for you, or it's in the transcript. Uh, and I'm happy to show them to you, happy to go ahead and read them. I've, I've presented a few of them here. Um, and I'm not trying to make the, the fathers say something that they're not saying. Uh, in some cases, they appear to affirm the sufficiency of tradition. In other cases, they talk about the sufficiency of um, Scripture. But even when I read those um, uh, passages of the, the sufficiency of the tradition, sometimes it's talking about the, the deity of Christ. Uh, the user posted a quote from Gregory of Nyssa, and um, it's talking about the deity of Christ, and that he received that from the tradition. And those, the tradition was articulating what's in Scripture. So I agree with how they, I agree with that tradition. I receive it as my own. Um, I just don't find these statements to be problematic um, in the same way that I think what they say about Scripture is problematic for Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic claims of authority. So I'd encourage you to read them on your own. I just simply don't find the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox harmonizations, explanations of these things satisfying. Uh, you can, I mean, there's some people who will make a distinction between the material sufficiency of Scripture and the formal sufficiency, as far as I understand it. Um, and they'll say, yeah, of course, the, the early fathers... Uh, affirm the material sufficiency of scripture. Um, so it's uh, like if you had a, a bunch of wood and hammers and nails and, and saws, um, there, there's the material sufficiency for building a log cabin, but you need tradition and the apostolic uh, authority, succession, the manual tactile ordination, in order to, to make the formal sufficiency of scripture come to fruition. Um, it, you can't build the log cabin on your own, right? Um, so, uh, there are ways of explaining these, of course, uh, I mean, it's Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox are aware of these and they, they have ways of explaining them. That material formal sufficiency is an example of that. Uh, I, I just don't find it satisfying. Um, I can build a log cabin on my own <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't disregard the fathers. I don't disregard the tradition that uh, has come before us. But, uh, but the scripture is, um, we all agree, is the infallible authority. And so everything has to stand under that. And if something deviates from it, well, that's a problem. Um, and so anything that kind of tries to jam all of this stuff into um, harmonization with Rome or the East, 
uh, to me just sounds like sophistry. Um, again, I, I, I agree that these men are Christians. They're, they are churches. I think they're churches with problems. Um, but uh, uh, I'm just wanting to show the early fathers and uh, what they had to say about Scripture and to just bring that to light and to give, the, give this to the readers and the listeners and um, the viewers um, to determine for yourself what's going on here, to give you a better taste of what's, what's happening in the early uh, years of the church. So today I'm going to go over um, what John Chrysostom... Oh yeah, actually, really quick. The user had mentioned uh, cherry picking. Um, and I, uh, again, I think anybody who is zeroing in on a certain topic... Uh, anybody who wants to talk about anything in history is cherry-picking. There's there's always that aspect prevalent. It's just a matter of how honestly you're wanting to present these passages, these quotes. Um, if you give me a list of of uh, passages on tradition, well, that's a, cher- a cherry-picking thing. And I'm going to have to go back and read what the context was and see if it harmonizes with... Um, uh, what the Roman and Eastern claims are and, and all that. So, um, so let's get back to the hysterical cherry picking. Uh, and today we're just going to be talking about John Chrysostom. He's a late fourth century minister, um, whose name means golden mouth. He was gifted, uh, rhetorically, um, and he, his, his sermons, uh, demonstrated that, um, he, he, in my mind is kind of a fourth century version of, uh, George Whitfield or, uh, Charles Spurgeon. He was a deacon and a priest in Antioch, and then he uh, became the Archbishop of Constantinople. Uh, and in line with the Antiochian tradition, he was more, uh, a little bit more straightforward with his exposition of scripture, as opposed to the more allegorical schools of, of Alexandria. He often preached against the extravagance of wealth and um, kind of just uh, ostentatious behavior amongst the wealthy and the neglect of the poor. Um, and that got him into trouble with uh, the emperor's wife, Eudoxia, I think her name was. He even references her as uh, another Herodias wanting the head of John the Baptist. Um, and he was ultimately exiled, and it appears to be he, he basically was, was killed by being marched to, to death. Um, so he died as he died in exile as an old man. But if you read his work, he's constantly exhorting his parishioners to read the scriptures. So this isn't necessarily authority, but it does show his appreciation for reading scriptures on your own, which is amazing. In the fourth century, it appears that his parishioners had the scriptures for themselves, um, in their homes. Um, so here's a, here's a sample. Here's something that he said. This also I am ever urging and shall not cease to urge that you give attention not only to the words spoken, but that also, when at home in your house, you exercise yourselves constantly in reading the divine scriptures. This also I have never ceased to press upon those who come to me privately. He continues, um, and he, he, he anticipates all these excuses that people bring up of just being too busy, having a busy schedule, and he just, he really kind of chastises them. Is No, this is indispensable for... Uh, it's an indispensable support in attaining salvation, your, your private scripture reading. Uh, he says, We must thoroughly quench the darts of the devil and beat them off by continual reading of the divine scriptures. For it is not possible, not possible for anyone to be saved without continually taking advantage of spiritual reading. Now, perhaps he's being hyperbolic here, although I don't think the point can really be 
um, overstated, but there certainly can be irregular circumstances of salvation. Uh, someone's in prison or, I mean, the infamous uh, thief on the cross, um, where salvation is attained without this kind of uh, constant daily reading. But the regular mode of a Christian and the regular uh, means of salvation, it, part of that is reading scripture on your own. I think he's correct to uh, emphasize this. It's a type of feeding, and if you don't feed yourself, you're going to starve. Um, like I said before, none of these address authority directly, but it shows his high regard uh, for scripture and something which, when I read this, I this is something I see Protestant ministers emphasizing. I don't see this emphasized among Eastern Orthodox or, or Roman Catholics. Now, maybe they do. Um, it's not the realm I was raised in, um, but this is something that Protestants emphasize as well. So, in another place, he's speaking about wealth and poverty, um, and then he, he adds this, Wherefore, I exhort and entreat you all, disregard what this man and that man thinks about these things, and inquire from the scriptures all these things. And having learned what are the true riches, let us pursue them, that we may obtain also the eternal good things. So, again, he's directing people to inquire from scriptures themselves, not just to listen to the opinions of men. And um, not simply to read them, but to implement what they say into their lives. So this is getting a little bit more into authority. Have, don't, don't regard what this guy says. This guy says, read scriptures for yourself. Sounds very Protestant. Uh, let's look at one more passage from Chrysostom. It's, this is a lengthy one, um, and in it, it's a homily. He describes a situation much like uh, the situation that popular Roman and Eastern apologists will use, um, that because there is disagreement among Christians, how can, we, uh, how can one who wants to be a Christian know what to believe? There's all these various interpretations. How are we supposed to know uh, what to believe? The Roman answer is, well, just submit to the infallible magisterium. The Eastern answer is submitting to uh, the tradition as they articulate it, as they understand it. Um, and uh, Chrysostom doesn't say any of these things. Chrysostom points to Scripture. <laughs> he just says, read the, scripture, read the Scriptures. Um, and uh, he then goes on to say that you are able to exercise your own judgment and reason. He basically just puts this high emphasis on judgment and reasoning and, and reading the Scriptures on your own. Um, he, his, his basic argument is you have decided that Christianity is true. So whatever that faculty is of judgment where you've decided against the pagans or against the Jews, continue using that faculty of judgment in these various strands or interpretations within Christianity. That's his fundamental argument. So it's going to get really wordy. It's a lengthy passage, but that's his fundamental uh, argument, which I would say is a Protestant principle or a small c Catholic principle. And, um, so he says, so, so here we go. What then shall we say to the heathen? There comes a heathen and says, I wish to become a Christian, but I know not whom to join. There is much fighting and faction among you, much confusion, much confusion. Which doctrine am I to choose? How shall we answer him? Each of you, says he, asserts, I speak the truth. No doubt this is in our favor. For if we told you to be persuaded by arguments, you might well be perplexed. But if we bid you believe the scriptures, and these are simple and true, the decision is easy for you. If any agree with the scriptures, he is the Christian. If any fights against them, he is far from this rule. 
<laughs> he points to the rule of scripture. These are simple and true. If he believes these, he is a Christian. But which am I to believe, knowing as I do nothing at all of the scriptures? The others also allege the same thing for themselves. What then if the other come and say that the scripture has this, and you that it has something different, and you interpret the scriptures diversely, dragging their sense each his own way? And you then, I ask, have you no understanding, no judgment? <laughs> and how should I be able to decide, says he, I who do not even know how to judge of your doctrines. I wish to become a learner, and you are making me immediately a teacher. If he say this, what, say you, are we to answer him? How shall we persuade him? Let us ask whether all this be not mere pretense and subterfuge. So in the chaos of multiple interpretations, this questioner that comes and says, how am I to know what is true? And Chrysostom, it appears, has little patience for this objection. Uh, he suggests that it's just pretense and subterfuge, that it's not uh, supported by the reality of the situation, that it's really not a legitimate objection. And really only, uh, it's just a way of escaping the hard work of, of continuing that exercise of judgment for yourselves in, in the study of scripture. He goes on, let us ask whether he has decided against the heathen that they are wrong. The fact he will assuredly affirm, for of course, if he had not so decided, he would not have come to inquire about our matters. Let us ask the grounds on which he has decided, for to be sure he has not settled the matter out, out of hand. Clearly, he will say, because their gods are creatures and are not the uncreated God. Good. If then he finds this in the other parties, but among us the contrary, what argument need we? We all confess that Christ is God. But let us see who fight against this truth and who not. Now we affirming him to be God, speak of him things worthy of God, that he has power, that he is not a slave, that he is free, that he does of himself, whereas the others say the reverse. Again, I ask, if you would learn to be a physician, and yet among them are many different doctrines. For if you accept without more ado just what you are told, this is not acting like a man. But if you have judgment and sense, you shall assuredly know what is good. He makes a great statement here saying that if you are suddenly abandoning your own ability to exercise judgment and sense that you're not acting like a man. That's, that's a fantastic statement. Um, and to put it provocatively, you could say that Protestantism is more manly than Rome or the East because it it, it, it entreats their people to exercise judgment and reason themselves, not to turn it off, not to give it away, not to say, no, we'll take that for you. We'll decide, we will exercise judgment for you, and you submit to us. That's not what Protestantism does. Protestantism says God is God. He's revealed himself in the word, and we have to submit to that and to that alone, right? And you, being a man with, with the ability to reason and to the ability to exercise judgment, need to continue to exercise that amongst yourselves. Paul even says this in, in 1 Corinthians, that, that everybody is to judge when somebody prophesies in the midst. Um, they're to judge the prophecy. The spirit of the prophets are judged uh, by the prophets. And he, and he uses the example, if you decide to be a physician, and then within the discipline of being a physician, there's different schools of thought. You, you, that doesn't keep you from being a physician. You just have to determine what you believe as a physician. You'd still have to decide what is true within that discipline, and it's a similar kind of thing within Christianity. 
And then he also brings up the full deity of Christ. If that's what they've decided, well, then go with the ones who affirm the, the full deity uh, of Christ. And this certainly is a standard of orthodoxy. But why is that? Because it's revealed to us in the scriptures that Jesus is God, right? Uh, we, didn't, we didn't get this merely because the, the men in apostolic succession affirmed it. No, we got it because the apostles affirmed it. And, and we, we put the apostles as their teachings are revealed in scripture as the ultimate authority. We affirm the Son to be God. We verify what we affirm, but they affirm indeed, but in fact confess not. But to mention something even plainer, those have certain persons from whom they are called, openly showing the name of the heresiarch himself in each heresy in like manner. With us, no man has given us a name but the faith itself. So here he makes mention of those with false doctrines taking upon themselves the names of the heretical teachers, whereas the Orthodox simply, they don't take the name of Marcion or Arius, they, they just take the name of the faith itself. Um, and this he'll bring up again later. However, this talk of yours is mere pretense and subterfuge. Again, he's... He's just saying this is, this is not a legitimate objection. For answer me, how is it that if you would buy a cloak, though ignorant of the art of weaving, you do not speak such words as these? I do not know how to buy. They cheat me. But do all you can to learn, and so whatever else it be that you would buy. But here you speak these words. Uh, for at this rate you will accept nothing at all. For let there be one that has no religious doctrine whatever. If he should say what you say about the Christians, there is such a multitude of men, and they have different doctrines, this a heathen, that a Jew, the other a Christian, no need to accept any doctrine whatever, for they are at variance one with another. But I am a learner, and I do not wish to be a judge. But if you have yielded so far as to pronounce against one doctrine, this pretext no longer has place for you. For just as you were able to reject the spurious, so here also, having come, you shall be able to prove what is profitable. For he that has not pronounced against any doctrine at all may easily say this, but he that has pronounced against any, though he have chosen none, by going on in the same way will be able to see what he ought to do. Then let us not make pretext and excuses, and all will be easy. For to show you that all this is mere excuse, answer me this. Do you know what you ought to do and what you leave undone? Then why do you not what, then why do you, not what you ought? Do that, and by right reason, seek of God, and he will assuredly reveal it to you. God, it says, is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Again, he's affirming that if you are willing to exercise judgment in judging against heathens and Jews, you can continue in that judgment in seeking out God uh, for truth among varying interpretations among Christians, and he will reveal it to you. And he also connects this to living rightly. Again, he is simply saying, you have made judgments thus far, keep going. It cannot be that he who hears without prejudice should not be persuaded. For just as if there were a rule by which everything behooved to be put straight, it would not need much consideration, but it would be easy to detect the person who measures falsely. So is it here. Then how is it they do not see it at a glance? Many things are the cause of this, both preconceived opinion and human causes. The others say you say the same thing about us. How? For, at, for are we separated from the church? Have we our heresiarchs? Are we called after men, as one of them has Marcion, another Manichaeus, a third Arius, for the author and leader of a sect? 
Whereas if we likewise do receive an appellation from any man, we do not take them that have been the authors of some heresy, but men that presided over us and governed the church. We have no masters upon the earth, God forbid. We have one master that is in heaven, and those also, says he, say the same. But there stands the name set over them, accusing them and stopping their mouths. So this is kind of a confusing passage, but it appears to me that he is making mention of the names of the heretics and that the Christian does not take the name of a teacher for his authority. And that even if some name of a man is ascribed to a group within the church, like Lutherans or Calvinists, it is because they are within the church, which acknowledges no master on earth with respect to ultimate authority, but one master in heaven who is God. And then he says the objector might say that the heretics also claim to be following the one master in heaven, at which point he doesn't make mention of anything else except the name of God. He appeals to the name of God by which the heretic appeals, and he says that that name stands over them, accusing them and stopping their mouths. So Chrysostom makes the final quarter of appeal God. He continues, how is it there have been... Many heathen, and none of them asked these questions. And among the philosophers, there were these differences. And yet none of those holding the right party was hindered thereby. Why did not those believers say when the others raised these questions? Both these and those are Jews, which must we believe? But they believed as they ought. So once again, the same problems of varying interpretation exist within the sects of Judaism or pagan philosophy, and that those problems were present, but it didn't stop people from becoming a Jew or becoming a pagan philosopher, but they believed as they ought within that framework and within those varying interpretations. I'm assuming he's referring to Jews here prior to Christ or pagan uh, philosophers who groped as closely to the, the living God as they, as they knew how, um, and that, that within those those sects, they, they were doing the best they could to exercise their judgment in, in believing what they ought and doing what they ought. And then this is how he ends the homily. Um, then let us also obey the laws of God and do all things according to his good pleasure, that having virtuously passed this life present, we may be enabled to attain unto the good things promised to them that love him by the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom to the Father and the Holy Ghost together be glory, dominion, honor now and forever, world without end. Amen. So <laughs> perhaps this is unsatisfying to some, but Chrysostom does not make an appeal to the magisterium or tradition, but simply to obeying God, much like the coaleth of Ecclesiastes. What, what, what do we do at the end of all this? Well, we fear God and we, we obey his commandments. Um, and that by the grace and the mercy of Christ, we may attain the good things promised to those who love him. And I, I love this because it's, it's simple and it's the insistence that each man has to search for God using his own faculties um, of reason and judgment, not apart from the people of God, not apart from the church, but in the chaos of the church, the chaos of the people of God. He appeals to the scriptures as being simple and true. That was the very first thing that he pointed to in this whole thing. And this in conjunction with other statements, many of which I did not mention here, all sound uh, very Protestant to me. Um, the principle of Protestantism is at play here in some sense. I just, you cannot deny that that is, that, that is going on. Um, I'm not saying that that's the only thing that's going on. Of course, we can find other passages which affirm something like the Roman or the Eastern conceptions, but even there, I'm not convinced that, that it's even that. Um, 
but uh, I, I want to bring these things to you so that you can judge for yourself and know that these men talked much like your local pastor at your non-denominational evangelical church. And that is okay. It's you, Your church is standing within the stream of historic Christianity in many ways. And uh, an honest assessment of history is just going to affirm that over and over again. So that's all I got for you this week. See you later. Bye.